Hi, lovely listeners. It's Tracy. If you've been listening to this program and thinking to yourself, you know, this is great and all, but I'd really love some hands-on design thinking experience. And I've got some exciting news. This summer, I'm teaming up with Field Guide, a design thinking experience, which is a three-day immersive adventure at the Gould Academy in Bethel, Maine. From June 21st to the 24th, we're going to put you in the role of lead designer. We've got a bunch of really experienced and talented design thinkers whose backgrounds range from IDEO to Google to Stanford D School, and we're all here to help walk you through some meaty design challenges. It won't all be work, because that's no fun. We're going to do things too, like fly fishing, uh, you can go hiking, biking, we'll be telling campfire stories, there's even something called a forest bath. So whether you're a teacher, an entrepreneur, maybe you're a nonprofit or a business leader, a policymaker, maybe you're a homemaker or an art maker or a troublemaker or just a curiosity seeker, we'd love to have you there. I'd love to have you there. If you're interested, visit fieldguide.gouldacademy.org. That's G-O-U-L-D. Or just go to the resultsmayvarypodcast.com website and we'll have a link. Register by April 15th the generous field guiders will even give you a reduced rate. So if you're thinking about it, go ahead and sign up. Come for the design thinking skills. Come for the like-minded community. Come for the forest bath. Uh, Just don't come for the blueberries because I've been told they're not in season. Hope to see you there. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to Results May Vary. This is a podcast to help you design your life. Tracy and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesign the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the most creative minds in science by turning their genetic information into music at the TED conference. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took this same creative problem-solving process we use to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results may vary as a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. Wow, the last episode, Deke Sharon. Take a listen to Deke and the world he has absolutely transformed, which is acapella. He uh, did an amazing job just at breaking down singing and voice and talent, his blend of education really perseverance has taken him to such an interesting place. We had a great time talking with Deke. My last experience uh, on a flight, I hopped on my United flight and there was Deke Sharon on the in-flight entertainment doing what he does best. Um, Hats off to Deke and and the people he's had a chance to work with. Today we have Ella Benner. Ella is very interesting. She's got a design thinking background using research, synthesis, and inspiration to help industries and individuals really catalyze themselves. So today she brings us 15 years of experience into a tool she calls the Compass. It's a very practical and actionable tool uh, that she's built that's really helping people move forward and, and just blast obstacles out of the way. Take a listen to this episode. Tracy and I really enjoyed talking to Ella Benner. And without further ado, here we go. I'm Ella Benor. I live in Boston, Massachusetts. I, with 
two wonderful daughters and a husband. My background is I grew up in the Midwest of the U.S. and have been here in Boston for quite a while. Most of that time, 13 years of that time, I was with IDEO, a company folks have been hearing a lot about, um, mostly here in the Boston office, also some in Shanghai, and have been away from IDEO for three years now on my own. What role did you have or what did you do when you worked at IDEO? Well, it evolved a lot over the course of 13 years, and that's kind of the nature of a place like that. My studies were at MIT, so I learned mechanical engineering and designed there and had gotten excited about IDEO and interned there between undergrad and grad school and then came back to IDEO after as a designer, as a mechanical designer, and then kind of started pretty early on doing more of the now called design research, understanding more about people at the front end um, of the design process and what they need and who they are and how to help. And then kind of grew into kind of the space in between, which is design strategy, really kind of taking a point of view on what products and product portfolios need to be. And then having kind of spanned the whole realm from the very beginning of the process to the very end of making things pretty early on also got asked to lead projects. So kind of thinking about how to enable a group of very different designers to really shine and do great work. Are there Um, any specific projects that stand out to you as your favorites that you worked on? Oh, yeah, quite a range. And you never know what will surprise and delight you from doing international food projects, which are, of course, lovely because you do field work around the world and you eat a lot of delicious food. But you also learn a a lot about people through their culture and their culture of food and their points of view on it. Maybe the flip side of that is doing kind of also a worldwide project about diabetes and the experience of diabetes around the world. And maybe a last fun one, totally unexpected, but really great, was on dentures. <laughs> what was that one about? It was about how much folks know about the denture experience, but it's not <laughs> great. Actually, a lot of people who have dentures, many of the services for doing that are you know, kind of sort of not a high sense of service and also the product isn't great. And if it's not great, it turns out you can't smile. You can't really eat well, you know, physically and socially your life kind of sucks. And so it's actually, they're really, really important. And there's a lot of potential to make the sort of denture process better, both technically to make better dentures and also as an experience that, that is worthy of the importance of it in people's lives. That's amazing. I've never thought that deeply about dentures. So <laughs> I can I'm see the why was that a favorite project? I can speculate, but I'd love to hear it from you. I think because for the people who were involved in the project, there were actually it was kind of a longitudinal kind of thing where we worked with the same sort of older people who were kind of part of this, this project and experiencing like new ways of having dentures that could be a whole lot better. It was so powerfully meaningful to them that that was really inspirational for me. And frankly, this is a little geeky, but, you know, I came from an engineering background and there's like an interesting kind of meaty technical side to it, too. So it really was passionate people work and really kind of interesting technical work all blended together. Would you mind why we're on this subject? A lot of our listeners are new to design thinking and to their credit, you know, just starting to get their arms around design thinking. We haven't talked about it that much. So while we're talking about dentures, (laughs) would you mind describing briefly the process that you went through to get to denture breakthroughs? Huh. That project was a little different than a typical one. But generally speaking, because we were working with a client that was sort of already experimenting and learning about new approaches. But actually, we spent mostly time with people who were getting service at a really sort of high-end denture maker who makes custom wonderful dentures and observing that both technically but also just from an experience standpoint, what made that different from the average experience, what they were experiencing, yeah, what he was doing differently and, you know, both 
in service and, and technically and how that affected them and kind of trying to zoom out and, okay, of all these things that this expert is doing, what are the most important things, both technically and experientially, like framing, like what are the most important things about this? And then trying to imagine, okay, so what could that be in a more scalable format? And I was just going to jump in. I wondered, you mentioned that you went to sort of a high-end denture manufacturer. And I think that's an important point because a lot of people would say, oh, if you want to redesign the denture experience, you should go to your target market, the middle of the road, everybody who's the average. And so could you talk a little bit about why it was important to, to talk to somebody outside of that sphere? Yeah. I mean, a lot of design is really about inspiration and, and learning from sort of the extremes. And a lot of these folks kind of had already experienced, let us say, the other extreme of denture making. And so kind of going to this kind of high-end extreme really helped us sort of see the full range of what dentures could be and, and what denture service could be. And, you know, take inspiration from that. And of course, you can't necessarily and maybe not want to fully duplicate what you see there, but you can take inspiration from it. And I think that's one of the kind of most essential things about designers and design. And frankly, a lot of creative people in the world is, is just looking in creative places for inspiration and not taking it entirely literally, but knowing how to sort of frame what's really important about that for them and taking it forward. Great. All right. Now that we've got dentures covered, that's a good, <laughs> good start. I bet of all the things we could have started with, I bet you didn't expect that. And this has no. been, thank you for taking it there. <laughs> so you talked about, as you know, Tracy and I had this hunch that design thinking could be applied to individuals. And obviously we're not the first ones to think that. I think we might be one of the newer groups to create a podcast about it. But I'm so curious to hear about your process of designing products and things and projects for IDEO and then that ultimately evolving into something you're calling the compass. Can you share a little bit about that journey that you've been on personally and what it was that drove you to the compass? Yeah, sure. So I started to kind of describe sort of the litany of <laughs> list of all the roles I had at IDEO and I think kind of got through a lot of them, you know, kind of growing in terms of responsibility and really stretching all the time to answer these new questions. Okay, how do we make a great product? How do I empower a team? How do we help organization really see what its strategy should be? And then just doing a lot of coaching, more and more coaching of teams. And okay, how do I help these people really quickly find their own next steps and really powerful ones and figure out how they can really stretch the envelope and push the envelope of what they're doing and when they need to just stop and recognize when they, they actually need a break. Sort of having to answer all those really different questions. I think while I was at IDEO and realizing along the way for myself, you know, in the question of how long do I want to be here? What's going on with me as well? Like through all of that, um, you know, kind of as David Kelly was talking about noticing that it was the coaching part that I really loved and taking a step away from IDEO, realizing that, that was kind of what I was really loving and going independent and now having a bunch more roles that stretch me even more because I'm working with all these people who have no exposure to design thinking and, and their goal isn't to learn it deeply, but rather to do their great work better, whatever it is, sort of empowered by design thinking. And like I work with a school district in a network of schools and I've worked with the Department of Education in Rhode Island and completely different things like an arts funder in, in New York who wanted to get a lot of organizations doing creative work together and a department store and chain, an athletic school, shoe manufacturer, like lots of different folks and trying to really help them do great things and finding that 
you know, whatever big thing it is they're trying to do is actually a million little challenges, right? Whenever you want to do something big in your organization, in your life, in your community, whatever, it's actually not just that one goal, but, you know, all these things that come up that are technical or organizational or interpersonal or even personal, right? Like it's just hard and people are like having breakdowns. So having to answer all of those things and do it in a way that isn't like a one-off conversation all the time. Like I wanted to help people in a way that was much more sustainable. That kind of got me down to like, what is just a much more essential, powerful way of communicating design thinking that people can really quickly own and quickly run with and apply to anything, like start to recognize anytime something doesn't feel right or something's starting to like get stuck, whether it's in their work or in their life, that this is a chance to pull it out. It was really important. And I think the final thing that really pushed me there was being a mom. So I've got two kids, two and four now, and realizing, you know, almost a sense of integrity, like spend all my time teaching about empathy and experimenting and all this stuff. And, you know, sometimes I'm with my kids and it's just not feeling like that. Like I'm not being as empathic or and creative and experimental as I could be. And also not really teaching that to my kids because I haven't really translated how to do that. So that was another thing of just, you know, sort of the ultimate crucible was trying to use this stuff with myself, with my kids. And when they're facing a challenge, like how do I boil it down enough that my four-year-old or even my two-year-old can kind of use it in some way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think... So really quick, so you formed Eye to Eye. Can you tell us what the purpose of the company is? What's the, I hate to say mission statement, but what's the point of the company and what are you trying to do with it? You know, I do in proper design thinking form, knowing that this is going to be a prototype. So that has sort of evolved. But always at the heart of it has been empowering people to do great work. It's not only design thinking, certainly at the core, because that's what I know and that's kind of my anchor, but have been just learning a lot about things like systems thinking and adaptive leadership and a lot of other things like that and trying to bring kind of the power of all of that together, grounded in design thinking to people in a way that is just as actionable as possible. And yet at the same time, as powerful and profound as I can make it because life is short and why not try? So I'm wondering, because I'm not sure if most of our audience would know what those things are. How would you describe the systems thinking and adaptive thought process and design thinking to your four-year-old? Yeah. Well, so all of these things, I mean, and you name it, the things that I just rattled off without even getting too deeply into them or scientific method or a lot of sort of creative processes. A lot of these things, they're all sort of ways that people in different kind of realms have found to stretch themselves to be able to see the present in new ways or sometimes the past in in new ways so that they can see the future in new ways from being able to dig deep into details to being able to zoom out and get big picture perspective. All of those things basically stretch us in those ways. And I think we have a pretty intuitive sense for when like you're not moving forward because you're not seeing things in a new way that can kind of get you unstuck or you're stuck in the details or you're actually stuck in dreamland. For me, if you kind of think about the space that that forms, it kind of creates these sort of four spaces that you can dig into. For me, framing an essential question, like a powerful but essential question for each one of those that works just as well with a four-year-old or even a two-year-old as it does with an executive is the way I have found most powerful and kind of giving people like a target to fill out really for each of those spaces. But those four questions are like sort of grow from the lower left and go around in a circle kind of clockwise. How do you really dig deep into what's going on? So asking like, what observations do I have? What's happening and why? It's really that simple. So what's going on and why? 
observations. That's kind of the first space. The second space is framing a point of view about what really matters the most about what's going on right now and, and what could happen. So kind of sweeping around and trying to get to the very top of that space. So getting that point of view, I know some of the previous folks on this podcast have talked about values or talked about dreams. And that's certainly true at a high level. And sometimes it's, you know, you're doing something that's much kind of a smaller issue than that. And sometimes it's just your goal or challenge that you have right now. But what's the most important thing that's going on and could happen? And then moving into the upper right, you know, how do you get big picture about the future? It's like, okay, well, ideas. What ideas can I imagine? What are all the ways I could make this thing happen that I think should happen? Getting as creative as you can. And then finally, in the lower right, prototyping experiments. You heard a lot of that in the previous podcasts. What's a small step that I can take to see what happens? So those four questions, what's happening and why? What's the most important thing that's happened or could happen? What are ways to make that happen? And what's a small step I can try to see what happens? And then coming around and back to making observations about this thing you just tried. What happened and why? If there's people involved, you know, what are they doing, saying, thinking and feeling? Those are the essential questions. Do you have an example of some work you've done recently where you took somebody through those four questions and sort of what that looked like for them? Sure. At a lot of different levels, I suppose. I've had, so kind of moving up the scale, I teach in college, at Olin College, and also just have a lot of young people that come to me for coffee or whatever they'd like to talk and had a bunch of those recently. And, you know, when they inevitably ask me, what should I do with my life? I know enough about their lives to answer that. So we pull out a compass and, you know, I start to ask them things like, when have you been most excited or most frustrated? When have you felt most fulfilled or frustrated? You know, when do you feel like you're like most able to contribute? Really sort of exploring the extremes of, as we sort of talked about, of their own experiences. And, you know, they haven't always asked themselves those questions and then getting them to zoom out and say, okay, what do you think your biggest challenges and opportunities are? And you know, like exploring all these things visually as well as verbally and physically if you can, but, you know, getting them to even just draw, you know, who they think they are and who they'd like to be and what they'd like to do and then generate some ideas about how they could pursue that. If I have any to offer, I certainly try mm -hmm. to add some to the mix and then like help them pick like what's a step that you could take to just try out one of those or someone you could go reach out and talk to. How does that resonate with them? What's their reaction? Is it something that they'd never thought of before or in this way? You know, I think for most of these kinds of challenges, you know, I can continue to go up the ladder to people who are trying to make changes in their organizations or the communities. You know, I think it feels really good to stretch in those ways, to see both the present in, in new ways, like, wow, I hadn't really thought about that. I never noticed that. I noticed that in some of the podcasts too, people kind of hearkening back on things that were important to them in the past and they hadn't thought about in a while or kind of having new ideas, even if you have some concept of where you want to go, but either not having really dreamed as big as they could, not having zoomed out as powerfully as they could, or, you know, not having kind of thought about all the ways they could pursue it. I think it just feels like motion. It feels like getting unstuck. It feels good in that way. And, you know, I think people that you meet all have their own ways they've approached it so far. And I would say that I don't think I've met anyone to whom all of that is new. And I think a lot of it is new to any of us, really. And it's more about putting it all together into one simple, like actual visual, tangible thing that you can use to prompt yourself to do these things. Because we all know it feels good to do those things, but we don't remember to do them. Absolutely. Usually, especially when like 
whatever the issue is, is really important to us. <laughs> That's when we least remember to do them. I just went to a workshop recently on behavioral economics, and they were saying that when things are difficult, we always go to the default. And when the default is to do nothing, we do nothing. So if you have big life-changing questions, then chances are you're just going to let life go on and not even take the time to look at it yourself. And I think one thing that's really interesting that we heard in some of the other podcasts is actually even questioning what that default is, because so often that default is what we think we're supposed to do or we think other people are supposed to do. And I know that I found in my life and in the people that I've coached, whether it's in their lives or even in their organization, like they're trying to do a project and they're sure that their boss's boss's boss is just going to hate this. A lot of times, actually, people forget to just even question what the default is that they're defaulting to. Because often if you ask the people who you think are setting that default for you, you may find that actually that's not what they're thinking. Ella, would you mind sharing an example of we love the tangible examples. Can you tell us some around eye to eye and experiences with helping people create their lives? Yeah, let's see. Most of my <laughs> work, most of my... It's kind of open-ended, so... Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So a lot of that life creation is more of sort of comes part of the work that I do through my organization. So um, okay. kinds of things that I do are like I worked, for example, with a network of schools that was hoping to become more innovative and was coaching them on a like big scale about like discovering and doing like projects within their schools. These are religious schools. Your default assumption would be that they're sort of conservative. So they're sort of being coached to do these longer projects through the same thing, right? Immerse for observations, frame a point of view, imagine ideas and prototype experiments, right? Mac, big scale, but then the life stuff happens along the way, right? I had my general approach is I usually do some combination of like in-person workshops where we really get a hands-on together and then remote coaching over Skype. And, you know, in these, especially in the remote coaching sessions where I'm sort of working with just one group of people at a time, the challenges start to come up. So for example, I had a principal at one of these schools ask me about you know, I really love this stuff. And I think, could I leave and even work at an idea or something like that? And I was like, oh, I really like this guy. And I like his school. And I was like, well, yes, we could talk about that. But also, you know, can we sort of rewind and like talk about this year and what the experience has been like of doing it, you know, at your school and try to open up sort of the possibilities, like frame, well, what is it that you really want? But what's the most important thing about working this way? You know, having sort of the freedom to do it was a big thing and just sort of the excitement, the creativity of it. And he was, after all, the principal. So can you shape some of that for yourself and even the place where you're working? You know, try to reframe that problem a little bit. If you've identified that those are most important values, let's generate some other ideas for how that could happen even in the shorter run. And I haven't followed up on him enough for how that's going experiment-wise, but... Yeah, that's a great example. So where do you want things to go? As you look to your future, what do you want to do? Well, for me, so really feeling that, you know, as I kind of hinted before, life is short. <laughs> My kids are young and I want to see, let's just see kind of how powerful the concept might be of getting to something, you know, sort of a practice, something between mindsets, which practices help develop. It's hard to just kind of go for a mindset on its own and like really complicated processes, you know, as David Kelly said, you can go read a lot about design thinking, but not everyone's going to do that. So can we get to really, really essential practices, like just a little bit more sophisticated, maybe than a handshake, but something that people could pull out really in any situation, whether it's designing something long-term like their life or their career, or in the moment, designing a interaction with 
their boss, with their organization, you know, with the people that they work with, with their spouse, with their children, you know, to be able to use the same sort of compass for all of those different moments, I think would be so powerful because I know even me, I'm sort of a process junkie and I can't hold all these different processes in my mind, not certainly in a way that I really pull them out and use them in the moment. And so that's my really driving mission right now. And so that's kind of where I've gone at this compass work. There's a little video on my website that tries to communicate it as quickly as possible. And that's kind of the start here. What I'm hoping to do, my focus for the next while at least, and have a bunch of different ideas about how to do this, is to try to put something like that out there and see how quickly people can kind of grab hold of it and start working with it and kind of close the feedback loop, right? Share back to me what they're doing with it, whether it's a snapshot of compasses that they've used and made or a compass of their experience using it. Like what are their observations of trying to use it? You know, what are the challenges and opportunities they framed about what it was like using it? What are their ideas for how to make it better? Experiments they'd like me to try or they'd like to try, but try to kind of keep pushing this to be as both powerful and flexible as possible in the full sort of all the stages, scales, settings, situations of life and work. Because I feel that it's one of the greatest impacts that I could possibly have on my kids' lives is one for me to be able to use it in all those ways because it would make me a better mom to them and make their environment so much better. But if sort of the world around them was meeting every challenge in those kinds of ways, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> you know, and maybe it's crazy, but life's short. Let's, we might as well try. And I think that getting it out there, letting people sort of push it, break it, flex it, so we can kind of figure out what's the level of structure, what's the level of flexibility. It's already evolved a lot in my own work. And now it's out. I'm working with more and more with people who themselves have their own networks, like some people who, for example, um, lead like accelerators for groups of education startups or schools, and they're using it with all of their people. And so for me, that's really exciting to see. It continues to really hone it, to be able to pass it to someone else and have them be able to pass it to other people. And all those people have to be sort of empowered by it. That's awesome. Can you give us a dinner party example? So someone sits next to you at a dinner party and you strike up and say, yeah, I've got a design compass that'll help you with your life. <laughs> Take it to the next level. So how would you describe it if they don't have time for the website or whatnot? Just how would you, for our listeners, describe what the compass is and how people can use it? One thing I've taken to doing, I have to confess, is carrying just plain white paper in my bag, which is awfully helpful because I can just put two lines on a piece of paper that intersect and then start just saying, okay, well, this is what these are, right? What we're going to do. So draw the two lines and then we're going from and then just be like, okay, these are observations. What's going on and why, right? What are you guys doing, saying, thinking, and feeling? Maybe I will save some of this person's specific content, but you can kind of imagine, right? Like, um, I know I was actually going to say, like, is there somebody whose story you feel comfortable, like walking yeah. through what some of those things actually were? Well, so in this case, this woman was frustrated with her spouse and feeling that she wasn't really listened to and that we just don't share the same values and those sorts of kinds of things. And just asking questions about like when she really feels that way and helping her sort of come back into those moments. And, you know, it's not all the time and it's just trying to sort of see what, what sorts of things like where their interests are different that when she feels like, oh, that's just so frustrating. You know, we're just so different and he doesn't care about these things. And and was this a conversation or was this like she was writing things down on the paper? A lot of times we end up just doing it through conversation. The questions are kind of straightforward enough that you can kind of just ask them, right? Like what's going on and why? What are you guys doing? Same thinking and feeling. And then, you know, getting her to like, okay, so let's try and look at this 
like big picture in any way. What do you really think is happening? And for her, it was starting to realize that it wasn't what he thought even sometimes. Like she was sort of assuming that just because he didn't like those same things, that like she was sort of projecting that back and being like, so because he doesn't do it, he doesn't like it, then I guess that means that it's not okay for me. But I asked him, have you really asked about that? And she started to sort of just wonder, like, is it just me not being okay, like having my own time and doing my own things and having time like separately to do things? And then sort of as, as an idea, this was just like wholeheartedly pursue some of these things that she was talking about and feel like, can she do that and not feel judged or just try to talk to him about it and see if that was changing at all, right? Like if her like pursuing those things more was actually something that was, was actually a problem for him. And this is a conversation, so I don't know what happened, but yeah, just sort of helping to open up like what was really happening, sort of thinking about the whole system, um, both herself and this other person and like, where were the feelings really coming from? Was it things that he was really saying or sort of just assumptions that we all have, right? We just have so many just kind of things that we, we just assume about people thinking and whether that even matters. Cool. Like having listened to some of the previous episodes that you could map some of the things that came out of those episodes onto the compass. Did you want to share what some of those were? Yeah, sure. They were all great. So we've had a really wonderful group of people so far. Hard to follow. Thanks. Um, we accept flattery. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And in your own story included, you told your own story in the first one. And so one of the things I already mentioned, so kind of thinking about like that, seeing the present in new ways, like really digging deep observing, right? We're doing, saying, thinking, and feeling. People kind of looking at their own past and pulling things out of it. A couple of people pulling like, oh, I used to really love to write out of my past or art kind of maybe the walls of her room told her that she should pull that back out. But and Aaron and making things and how important that was to him and just noticing things like, you know, again, like what you're doing and why the whole exercise thing came up a couple of times, like David Kelly noticing that it actually works better for him if he's with other people. And I think you're noticing the opposite, but just sort of noticing like when that feels good and when it doesn't, and not just kind of asking yourself, but asking other people. A lot of people talked about, you know, talking to people that you know, that that love you and care about you and ask them what they think. Um, because a lot of times they can see you as well. They're noticing, right? They care about you and they're noticing what you're doing and how that's making you feel as well. So those were things that I think a bunch of people talked about. Mm -hmm. And then- you know, people talking about values and dreams, you know, so like Aaron and the van just, you know, realizing that he has values around having control of his own life and being able to design things and having independence and having some solitude or being able to form dreams, as Jessica was talking about. And, you know, the more you have those, the more you continue to sort of pull out from your day-to-day experiences and realize what those are. It was interesting sort of hearing David Kelly talk about the difference between just trying to name those without doing observation and getting a list that he didn't find himself following up on when he was on a plane and just kind of making his bucket list. And then having, I think it was maybe a psychologist, I think, help him start with observation instead and notice what are the things that like on a daily basis really make him happy and then generating his you know, list of like, what are his dreams for the next years of his life? I thought that was really interesting. But having those, and once you have those, it's just amazing to me how much opportunity starts to line up. Or maybe it's just because you can see it because you've got this big picture view of what's important to you now. So you'll see that van or you'll see that apartment that you want, or, you know, I think you just start to see them everywhere. So 
the sort of upper right stretching to sort of see ways that you can actually make those things happen. People got pretty creative, like Aaron with as well. It could be a boat or it could be a tiny house or it could be a van. I find that, you know, once you've got this vision, you start to see opportunities everywhere. Like even I this morning was running and, and one of the things I'm really hoping for is better quality time with my kids. And I saw someone walking with their daughter and I thought, oh, I should start doing that. So I think me and the folks in these podcasts have been able to sort of identify, find more and more ideas within themselves or from other people that fulfill those dreams and values. And then, I mean, lower right prototyping experiments, like digging deep into new ways of seeing the future. No shortage of experiments for sure. The blog seemed like a really great experimental platform for a couple of folks. Amazing what some blogging or writing serial stories, you know, ways of just putting thoughts out there in small ways and letting people respond to them. In Elle's case, responding massively to them but also just experiments like back on the exercise, like what are like small, safe ways to try new ways of exercising and seeing if it works for you or not before you just kind of throw the baby out the bathwater and decide that running or whatever kind of exercise isn't for you. Hey, Ella, I just, you've done so many projects and you've observed and talked to lots of people and their commonalities that you observe that the compass sounds like it's solving for it, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So many stories that Tracy and I have heard, and really the point of the podcast is to get people over this gap between ultimately what they want to be and where they are. Yeah. And I'm curious to just hear, is there, what do you think that gap's about? What keeps people from acting on those higher order ambitions that they have for themselves? Yeah, I think it depends. Like one of the ways I sort of use this compass for everything. So one of the things I've done with my students and people I coach is to use it as a spider diagram where we put like actual behaviors in each of the quadrants. Like I'm likely to observe carefully and get curious and be empathic or, you know, I'm likely to really try new things or experiment in small ways and be resourceful, you know, like put those in the quadrants and make a big circle and then let people sort of draw how much of those things they are all the way around. So I find that different people just have different challenges because they have different sort of habits that they're into. So for some people, it's not even having the dream or having the dream that's not quite the right dream because they haven't really been paying attention. It might be because they're pursuing should instead of must, as Elle talked about, um, because they haven't sensed their own must. And that's kind of what David Kelly was talking about as well. So the people who are, you know, part of the reason it's not happening, it's it's just not meant to happen for them. It's not even what they really, really want. Um, So underneath that's keeping it from happening. You know, nothing can go forward if your passion isn't behind it. And once your passion is, boom, right? Like it just happens. Things start to fall into place for you. So that's one is like finding the dream that really matters. Another is being able to frame it as powerfully as possible. So that's kind of the top left, you know, people who kind of know what it is, like they sort of sense, but they're not dreaming as big as they could be, or they don't have it crystallized as to like, this is the change I want to make. So sometimes framing is their challenge. Sometimes it's that imagining, right? Actually, they've got this really clear frame and it is so specific. They think there's one way for it to happen. And well, you know, the chances of that happening are unfortunately not very good. And so we need to be creative. We need to imagine a lot of different ways that something could happen and be flexible to those and to be really open and to really seek inspiration in all the places you wouldn't expect to find it. So people who haven't really been able to open up to different possibilities or just haven't been able to find them is another one. And then people who are more limited in, in the right, in the lower right, which is like being able to actually kind of dig deep and conceive a really concrete experiment that's swift, it's safe. It's a smart experiment that will actually teach them about what they're really 
worried about actually going to the heart of what they're most afraid of or what they're most worried isn't going to work and designing experiment around that thing and doing it. So there's been so much about like just taking that first step. I think about that middle, the point where those two lines cross as a space as well. And that's, I kind of hinted at it earlier, that's realizing when you don't have any of those things, like you're just, I don't have ideas, I don't have observations, I don't know an experiment, I don't know nothing. I am just so stressed right now. I've had like clients, especially that I've worked with that are in really important positions in their organizations, they are so stressed yeah. that they can't get observant, they can't get creative, they can't get experimental, they just can't. And they need to just center. They need to not try to stretch in any of those ways, but figure out how to recenter, just like not try, <laughs> but just go for a run or get a bunch more sleep or spend time with their family, what they need to do. And then, you know, it's amazing how you pop out of that without even expecting it with vision. Right. I know two of the biggest sort of epiphanies I had in the last years happened while I was hiking. And I was not even thinking about this stuff. Like the name I do I experience happened while I was hiking and I wasn't even really thinking about it, you know, and there's something to be said for that too. Excellent. Yeah. A follow-on question is really fascinating is question on the heels of that are a lot of creatives, entrepreneurs, artists, they didn't have a framework or a compass, you know, to take them through. And I think this right. is a, a real gift you're giving people, but do they have something that other people just don't have. I mean, one argument that I've heard out there is just everything from it's genetic to your motivations higher, or I would just love your point of view hmm. on that subject is, do those people just have something that other people don't have? Or do you believe that it's in everybody, they just don't have the tools to unlock it? What's going on there in your mind? Well, I think that there's a couple of things. One is to decouple like talent in a particular area, like you know, a Picasso, like someone being really, really great skill at a particular kind of art from more sort of broad creativity. I wouldn't necessarily venture to say that everyone has the potential to be really great in every kind of creative art, which is slightly different than saying people all have the potential to be very creative. I think anyone who has small children can see, and this is what really, really struck me and sent me on this mission is that kids do all four of these things pretty well, maybe not the framing so much, but it didn't take a lot to help my kids do that more consciously. But I mean, try to walk a block with a kid and stop them from observing everything that happens or asking you why that kid is crying over there. I mean, you know, the whole five whys that we teach ourselves to do in design thinking, right? That's what your two-year-old won't stop doing and seeing things in new ways. I mean, you walk that block and they frame, you know, what they see very differently than you do. And, you know, if they want to do something, they find the way to do it, right? They'll keep trying and trying, trying and discovering, you know, thinking of a new way of doing something. And they're certainly not afraid to experiment, right? Like the whole classic building the blocks and having them fall over and, and try again, right? They, they, they keep experimenting in small ways. So I think the experience of having small children has really led me to think that we are born with it. And I know that a lot of people in creativity talk about that, but like being able to stretch in those ways, see the present new ways, see the future new ways, dig deep, zoom out. I think we all have that capacity and it comes back to the sort of age old notion of we are what we practice or we are what we repeatedly do, that Aristotle said. That's kind of the fundamental part of a lot of different practices from yoga to meditation to religion, right? Like what are these essential things that we can do that are kind of basic enough that everybody can remember them that keep those abilities alive and continue to grow them over the course of your life. And so for me, that's what it's really about. And if you're fortunate and you're in an environment that, you know, continues to foster those, 
you may not ever have to be really, really conscious of them. Like you can just continue to be really creative, I think, and not even articulate your own process or, and I actually shy away from the word process a little bit, but you may not even know why or where your creativity comes from. But I think that offering just a little bit of form to that, like giving some sense of what those things are and how we support them just by asking four basic questions opens up the possibility for all of us to create environments in our homes, in our organizations that let people continue to develop those things. Right. This is awesome. And I I love everything you're saying. I think one question I have for you is I heard a recent podcast on someone else's podcast and they were talking about a guy said, I can tell you how to meditate. I can tell you the different forms of meditation. I could tell you how long you should do it to be effective. And I can tell you how great it is for your health, but I can tell you that I don't meditate. (laughs) And there's a very large, it appears, growing population of people that are aware, but won't do, you know, and can you leave them with something that they could take action on? Yeah. I mean, I think it would be, so two things. I mean, one is for me, the aspiration is that the compass is actually something that is just so available and so accessible and simple that, you know, you can just start using it. And I have to say that I've had, as I've gone down this road, like recently, the switch flip between people kind of going through workshops and being really inspired about design thinking and kind of getting a sense for the mindsets and all this kind of stuff. You know, they've seen me sketch it for five minutes and just talk about it. And I'm getting emails saying, I just use this with my team. I just use this with my spouse. I use this with my grandmother. And that to me is already a sign that maybe we could get there. And I think that there's two things to that. One is getting to being really simple and the other it being really, really, really applicable and like immediately obvious to people that they want to use it, why they want to use it, how they're going to use it. So they do. And as soon as they do, they get such powerful results that it reinforces really fast. All of that said, the three things I'd leave people with, I mean, I use this mnemonic, A-E-I-O-U, you'll see in the video if you need to, but it's pretty straightforward. It's like, if you do it, be all in, like just put your head, hand, heart, gut, brain, everything into doing it embrace everyone and anything that could be part of the system or solution that you're working on. Iterate, 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 own it, orient yourself. You can start anywhere. Don't feel intimidated. Many people start with an experiment. You don't even realize it. You just do something different and you go, wait a minute, what just happened? I feel differently. And you start to notice that and you go from there. But the most important thing I leave people with actually is just the four questions. Just notice what's happening and why. Ask yourself what matters most about what could happen. And then you know, what's something I could try? Like, which of those are things am I going to try first? I'm just going to, and then commit to doing it. But those are four, four questions. I can't it's leave really you with nice. really any others. Really nice. <laughs> those are the questions. <laughs> yeah. I think they're asking is just through our call. It's like, it is to simplify it, even down to the four questions is really elegant. And just constantly, I could see people just constantly rotating through those. It's like, In it's the order. morning, I'm struggling. Let me rotate through these four questions. You know, just, okay. it seems like a really helpful tool and then to take it to paper, it just gets exponentially better and better and better. So so the four basic questions are what's really happening and why. If there's people involved, what are they doing, saying, thinking and feeling? But what's happening and why? What matters most about what's happening and could happen? What are ways that I could make that happen? And what's a small step that I can try to see what happens and then come back, observe what's happening and why? That's amazing. It's like life simplified. Yeah, I I definitely. I mean, I think that you incorporate them in a way that makes them more people centered and just more applicable to people's lives versus 
different activities that you need to engage in. You're just asking yourself questions. You're not necessarily prototyping and building something with your hands or brainstorming and getting five people in the room to help you. You can do this yourself or you could reach out and do it with other people, but you're really just asking fundamental questions about the present, the past, and looking towards what the future could hold. You know, I think as designers, you're pretty much asking ourselves those four questions and trying to use visual, verbal, and physical ways of doing it. And that's how our toolkit of 101 design methods happened. (laughs) That's one of the cleanest descriptors of what distinguishes design that I think I've ever heard. Hooray! And And I actually love it for our listeners because if you want to just put your toes in the water, ask yourself these four questions. If you want to get a little bit more serious, visualize some of the solutions. If you're ready to really push yourself out of the nest, try it out in a tangible form. So, um, All four quadrants. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I'm missing one, which is the observation part. And I, I think that a lot of people will just skip right through that. I've got a friend that's like, she said, I, I want to really help people out. She works at One Medical and she's in health coaching. And ultimately, if you're in health coaching, you're in life coaching. And so she's like, I'm just going to go out to the park and set up the stand with the sign that says free advice. And a lot of people would think, hey, that would be funny or that would be interesting or that's dumb or whatever. But what differentiates her is she actually did it. (laughs) And to hear her stories of what people asked her when she just set up this stand in San Francisco in a park with a sign that says free advice. At one point, she had a line of people. People were asking her (laughs) dating questions and financial questions and other people just wanted to talk. And one thing that was absolutely not true or not expected is that she was busy the whole time. And what you might think in principle is that no one's going to walk up to a free advice bar at the park. And sure enough, they line up for it. And I just loved her story. And then she went back to the park. So she made it real. And it wasn't hard or difficult. It was just that she went from the idea to action. Right. That's pulling that circle. The two most powerful moments really are like at the very top and at the very bottom. The top being where you've just got this crystallized vision that you can just state about the difference you want to make between the present and the future. Big picture I want everyone to be able to live and breathe this stuff without even thinking about it, right? I want people to be able to face, recognize and face every challenge creatively. And then the bottom, the very bottom is this magic moment where you take something that is a future idea, you've envisioned like a concrete experiment you can do and you come around and it's no longer future. It is actually present. You are doing it. You can observe it. You can see what happened. You can see how you feel about it. It's real. You have actually changed the present, right? You've changed things because you've put a real thing out there and that leap feels like a million bucks. And once you start doing it, as David Kelly talked about, you know, that sense of self-efficacy, it's like, it's really addictive. It's really great. I really want to grab onto something you're saying right now and, and wonder if you've been trying this is, it seems like people would be more willing to dabble in a lower risk category. So if I've got a little bit of confidence, for example, on how to curate a fun dinner party with my friends, I might take the compass and sort of reimagine that fun way of doing it, which grows my confidence to do the thing that might be riskier, which is to play guitar at my own wedding and I'm not a very good guitarist. You know what I mean? So I love that the compass could be taken and applied to something that's much lower risk to raise the confidence for the things that would be much, much riskier, like a career move or a city move or a decision on a relationship, et cetera. So have you been kind of applying it that way where it's let's try the low risk thing first? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that yes and no, I think it comes up as it comes up. So whatever is on people's minds, whatever the situation is, Hmm. 
I think that at any scale, if it's what matters to the person at the time and it instantly sort of makes an impact for them, that's the most helpful thing you can do. And I think sometimes actually being able to take some of those scary things and making them less scary can be really great because I think this is one of the big things in design thinking is that there's tremendous safety in iteration and little bits of experimentation. That's one of the things that all the speakers so far have talked about is actually like talking about the big thing, right? Like what they're doing with their lives, but spending just five minutes asking yourself like to look at, okay, well, what's my life been like so far in a new way? And what could it be? Like that talk is cheap, so to speak, right? And it can be massively eye-opening. And then you can discover an experiment that's quite real, but quite safe, right? You don't move to the other place, right? You just, you go spend a weekend. <laughs> you know, you can find ways to dabble in it. So I think that the killer app in a way is being able to actually not have so much limits about what you're exploring, but rather how, right? Can you take a scary topic and scale it back and just do, do a five minute compass on it? You know, I have a friend who has listened to all the episodes and she's like, I still don't get what design thinking is. And then she went to go see, is it John Maida speak? And he had defined design thinking in two sentences. And she's like, I totally got it. It completely made sense. And I can't oh, remember well, what the sentences was. Speak, but he wasn't speaking about design thinking. So I didn't get to hear his definition of design thinking in two. Yeah. I want to know it. I know. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Ella, before but, we close, I just wanted to say congratulations. And it's such a powerful tool that you've created. And for so many people that otherwise wouldn't have access to tools like this. And so it's such a privilege to talk to you and hear about the journey that you've been on and how it's being applied to help people create better lives. And how do we point people to you and the kind of work that you want to be doing? My website is one really obvious way. It's sort of up to date. What's the URL? It's i2iexperience.com. The video is under, I think it's ideas and inspiration or inspiration and ideas. So the video I'm talking about and that video, this video is created for as a part of a proposal for South by Southwest education. That's a big sort of education conference. And so it gives a bunch of really concrete examples, which are kind of in the realm of education. But I think they hint at sort of the broader ways that you can use it in your life and other and in your organization and everything else. So it's got a little bit of an education bent to it, but it's a pretty good kind of start. And if that's something that they want to experiment with at any scale in their life and their organization, otherwise just reaching out to me is, is a great way to do it. I hope to um, have a more formal way of closing that loop and possibly working with some folks at Harvard Ed School's Project Zero. That's the group that started by Howard Gardner that developed the concept of multiple intelligences. And I just have good friends there and we're, we think it'd be really fun to play with this and just like, as it goes out there, um, try to bring back people's experiences and like document them and how they've experimented, how they've you know evolved this thing and, and try to make that a little bit more like a formal kind of loop closing about it. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for all that you're thank doing you, and for sharing with us today. Yeah, that was great. What I loved about this episode was that she had just this really simple tool. It's not even a tool. It's just like some questions to ask and, uh, and get started thinking about things. It makes it super tangible. Yeah, if anything, the tool is a, a blank sheet of paper. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and your brain. And your brain. This one really got me thinking. And I, you know, we did ask a question there on the end. Or what are the, we inverted the question, which was, this is a great tool that helps people, but what do you, what is it, Ella, that gets in people's way? And I think that 
That's the question we should ask often because just looking at the problems in reverse, and I've been thinking a lot about it because her tool is really basic and I could still feel people listening even with that simple tool. You still kind of have to face your stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And I think that she breaks down a great tool for you to sort of face your thing and put it out there. So just to review the questions was what's happening what matters most to me? Like, what's my point of view? Mm-hmm. What are ways that I can make this happen? And then what's something small that I can try? One thing that people miss, and I want to make sure this, is, this comes out after talking to Ella, is that that loop continues. So you don't stop at, here's something I can try, and it either worked or it didn't, and now I'm done. Right. That tool didn't work for me. It's that it keeps going. So you go right back to the beginning. Now that's what I tried. So now it's happening. Now what matters most and what else can I do? And then what do I try? So the the fact that the loop is continuous is interesting, but I can't help but think just what is getting in the way. And I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at people because this happens to you and I as well. Yeah, absolutely. Is just pulling out the paper. Like (laughs) how do we get people to pull out the blank sheet of paper? Right. Or even just mentally ask themselves those questions, right? Like as they're listening to the episode, but it's the, okay, what's one small thing you can do? Then you're like, oh yeah, I could do this thing. And then it's just not a part of your life. It's not a habit that you've created yet. And so there's effort that it takes to get past it or to get started. I think what we are saying is like, it's a loop and it continues. The power is that once you start to build up some of these small wins, that starts like a flywheel. It starts to just take on its own momentum and pushes you forward. But it's really the effort that it takes in the beginning that keeps people just stuck. Right. And it makes me think about, you know, I think the things that people would plug into that first quadrant Mm -hmm. are already really daunting. Like she gave the example of a relationship in difficulty or you know, people's career in difficulty or education in difficulty. Right. And I can't help but think if I was having this conversation with myself every week, you know, where I took out the white piece of paper every Sunday night and I Mm -hmm. just mapped and I just did the map that just seems to um, reduce some of the significance. But once these things bundle and boil, I think that's what's hard is they, you stuff them down long enough and then they become really big things that you have to face. Yeah. Uh, But if there was some sort of a ritual weekly or otherwise even daily i was gonna say yeah so go to bed at the end of the night it's kind of like gratitude journals except you're trying to come up with experiments for yourself right right and it it reminds me i think we've talked about it on the show before is i just love that guy that told me once he's like i can tell you everything about meditation i can tell you why it's great for me um uh i can tell you how i can do it in five minutes but do i do it no yeah (laughs) and it comes back to that and i just think that's really interesting just as a as a human species it's like are we just all so exhausted or you know what what is it um that keeps those little inklings of rituals from finding their way in 
Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, well, what, one thing I wanted to talk about too is, I mean, she was talking about her daughter and kind of using this as a tool for, you know, why she's tripping or, you know, it, yeah. it was like a small thing. And I think that that's a really good example of how to use it in a way that isn't daunting. It's like just tiny, I, tiny stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just start with those. Don't try and tackle the, why is my relationship failing? <laughs> you know? Yes. Like, get, yes. Start with like, why don't I make the bed in the morning? Yeah. yeah. Get yeah. a couple of wins under your belt and then you can start to break those larger tasks into, into smaller things. Yes. Yes. So I, I just want to also just recognize and, and appreciate Ella's past and point of view on this. I mean, an engineer from MIT, on paper, it looks highly unlikely, right? Yeah, this, right. This, um, this uh, brilliant MIT engineer goes into human-centeredness and ultimately comes out the other side with a, a human tool to help people. But what I like about that is an engineer's mindset is typically more practical and, and often more linear. I'm not saying Ella's is, but I just found that fascinating that she made that evolution if you will or, or in some ways if you looked at it in one way you'd say that's a, a 180 yeah um, but in a lot of ways it just ends up making perfect sense like okay got it it's a, it's a very practical pragmatic set of tools to get me up and going mm -hmm. yeah i'm actually working with a handful of engineers right now kind of taking them through the design thinking process and yeah it's interesting because you're right like totally brilliant people, super practical, super logical, very problem solution based. And it, what I think it does is just expands your capacity to solve problems. It's like, you don't just have the problem and then you jump to the solution. You have the problem, you kind of expand your, your point of view around the world to see multiple problems and then you select the ones to dive deeper in. So I think that for engineers, it's actually a really useful skill to adopt and apply into their own process. But I just, I've noticed, you know, trying to, trying to teach people this new way, uh, it, there's just a lot of ingrained, you're, you're used to doing things a certain way, and so you're looking for the right answer. And I think what right. we're talking about is there's not necessarily a right answer. It's a series of, you know, small decisions that you're making along the way that leads to a, a larger answer that works better than some others would work. But uh, I'm just struck by there was, you know, I'm asked questions about, you know, well, how, how would you do, um, you know, how would you do sharing back your stories about people that you've talked to in the field? And it's like, well, I propose that we do it this way. That was one, one of the engineer's examples. Right. And, right. and I was like, wow, yeah, that's so different. <laughs> it's such a different mindset than I'm used to. You yes. know, it's like, yes. no, we could, we don't have to propose the way to do it. We could try different ways. Right. We're getting a lot of great listener feedback and thank you all for that. And yeah. I think what I'm, what I'm finding, and I know you are too, Tracy, is there are different little pieces from different episodes that people are putting together that work for them. And I, and I think yeah. that that's what I'm loving about the diversity of approaches is, uh, is that different tools work for different, different folks. And so this has been just another great episode demonstrating another tool and a slightly way of looking, different way of looking at things to, to help people get going in one direction or another. And I think that it's fair for us to say we're, 
while we have a point of view, we are relatively too agnostic. We don't care. We just yeah. want people to to go and, and to try and to let us know so we can evolve our own way of thinking and, and the way of thinking that is working for different people in different neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious if folks want to share back on our Facebook page or Twitter, just kind of some of the things they've been trying or little experiments they've been doing, or if you use Ella's tool, we'll, we'll have it up on the website. Uh, but if you use the tool or even just think about it in your head, uh, give us some comments back on how it's been working or not working or, you know, changes you've made to it. You know, she's evolving this as she goes along as well. So feedback to her would be fantastic. Great. Yeah. Check out Ella's Compass uh, on the show notes. And thanks to everybody for yeah. listening to another great episode. Bye, everyone. Bye. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Our dream is to build a community of people who can create and take advantage of any opportunity that interests them. To do this really well, we'd love for you to participate. Try out and share back your own life design experiments. Or if you've already got a great story of how you've designed your life, We'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page or at resultsmayvarypodcast.com. Our website is also where you'll find show notes and links to all of the things we mentioned in the episode. And if you would be so kind, subscribe to the show and share your favorite episodes with friends. That'll let even more people start designing their own lives. A big thanks to the folks who help us make the show possible. Composer and filmmaker H.P. Mendoza for the Results May Vary theme music. Graphic designer Anessa Bramer for our logo, David Glazier for sound mixing, and team podcast for editing. And of course, thank you so much for listening to Results May Vary!